So that really upset me that we were brushed aside. Tonight on the KRBD Evening Report, Alaskans react to the Trump administration's continued push to open more of the Tongass to development. Plus, the pandemic has cost the marine highway system tens of millions of dollars in lost ridership. All that and more coming up. First, let's take a look at the weather. Starting with a special weather statement, we'll have a strong frontal system moving into the Alaska Gulf and Panhandle Saturday night through Monday morning. That's according to the National Weather Service. Tonight, numerous rain showers with lows in the mid-40s, south winds to 10 miles an hour. Tomorrow, widespread rain showers with highs in the mid-50s, southeast winds to 10 miles an hour. Rain Saturday night with lows around 50 and southeast winds to 20 miles an hour. Sunday will have rain that may be heavy at times with highs are in the mid-50s, southeast winds to 25 miles an hour. Rain is likely Sunday night with lows around 50. You're listening to the KRBD Evening Report. I'm your host, Eric Stone. As we mentioned yesterday at the top of the show, there is some big news in the decades-long battle over the Clinton-era roadless rule for national forests. The Trump administration announced yesterday that it's planning a full rollback for the Tongass National Forest aimed at what they describe as maximum additional timber harvest. Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports. The roadless rule, simply stated, forbids road building and industrial activity, with some exceptions, in areas that don't already have them. It covers nearly 9.4 million acres, or just over half of southeast Alaska's Tongass National Forest. Addressing civic and business leaders at Southeast Conference on Friday, Senator Lisa Murkowski praised the federal government's decision. The roadless rule is not just about timber. It is about reasonable access for a wide variety of users. Alaska's congressional delegation has long opposed the 2001 rule. So has the state. It sued and settled with the feds to win an exemption that lasted about seven years. So those applauding the decision say don't expect boom times right away, especially not with logging. I don't think it's going to be any more intensive than it was when we had the total exemption in the period from 2004 through 2011. Juno attorney Jim Clark is former chief of staff to Governor Frank Murkowski, Lisa's dad. Clark has been helping fight the roadless rule from the beginning. He predicts it'll help the mining and energy sectors, especially hydropower, by making it cheaper and easier to build roads on federal forest lands. But it won't happen overnight. It would be a mistake to oversell uh, either the problems that are going to occur for the environmental community as a consequence of this or to oversell uh, how much economic development is going to occur as a consequence of this. The thing about the roadless rule is, in Alaska and elsewhere, it's been pretty popular. The Forest Service says it received 411,000 comments, most of those in favor of keeping the status quo. And during two years of public hearings, Alaskans came out in force to defend it in person. The reasons varied. Concern about deer and salmon habitat, preserving wild places for guides to bring tourists. Tribes were particularly vocal about keeping the national forest intact. We really don't want any more uh, industrial logging. Uh, we want to keep what's here because we know the effects of logging. Joel Jackson is president of the organized village of Cake. Old growth timber areas uh, provide for us uh, going out to gather berries and our medicines and also uh, hunt the deer and moose in our area. The feds were required by law to consult with federally recognized tribes that live around the Tongass. But Jackson says he feels like the agency was just going through the motions. I felt like they didn't really listen and it turned out they didn't. The agency was listening to some, 
Emails obtained by an environmental organization show a D.C. lobbyist working for the Alaska Forest Association, a timber industry group, set up a telephone call between Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue and Governor Mike Dunleavy last year. The governor's office confirmed the call took place, but released no information of what they talked about. The Alaska Forest Association, whose members were in Washington and in the room during the call, also declined comment. That revelation angered tribal leaders. Tribes had offered to travel to D.C. to meet with Secretary Perdue, but were told only an undersecretary would be available to receive them. Joel Jackson says it's unfair that Trump administration cabinet officials will meet with industry, but not tribal governments. They're just a, a timber uh, association, and the tribes are, uh, are uh, sovereign nations, every one of us. So that really upset me that we were brushed aside. Other arguments against exempting the Tongass from the roadless rule can be lumped into two general categories, economic and environmental. Let's start with the first one. We are concerned that opening up areas where there are not currently roads to timber sales would increase taxpayer losses. Autumn Hanna is an economist with Taxpayers for Common Sense, a D.C. watchdog. A recent report found that timber sales on federal lands cost taxpayers about $2 billion over the past 40 years. We've seen plenty of evidence already that taxpayers would lose significantly more by logging in these old growth areas that are harder to access and have been protected by the roadless rule. The losses happen because the Forest Service actually pays for building new roads used by the timber industry to log public lands. In relatively remote areas with old growth stands of trees, she says, the cost to the public are even higher. So taxpayers are upside down and underwater on these timber sales. The Forest Service's final environmental impact statement runs to nearly 700 pages, and critics have already seized on one passage that downplays any impact to climate change. It says more logging would have only a temporary influence on atmospheric carbon concentrations that would get better as the forest grew back. Yeah, I don't buy it, and I think they're kicking the can down the road. There's a lot more impacts that are going to happen. Dominique Delacella is an Oregon-based researcher who's advocated for transitioning all Tongass timber harvest to young growth. He says the Tongass is a vast carbon sink, as other forests in the Pacific Northwest are lost to development, and more recently, wildfire. We've got to recognize that every action has a reaction in terms of the atmosphere, and to deny that, the Forest Service is really denying climate change. So what happens now? Under the federal government's rulemaking process, the Secretary of Agriculture has to wait 30 days from releasing its record of decision. A future presidential administration could work to change that, but would have to go through this whole multi-year rulemaking process from scratch. But there's another piece to the Tongass logging debate. The amount of old-growth timber that can be cut is restricted by the Tongass Forest Plan that sets out a transition to young growth over 15 years. And when Governor Bill Walker's administration petitioned for the roadless rule to be rolled back, it also called on the federal government to revise its 2016 forest plan. There's been absolutely no movement on that by the Forest Service or anybody else. That's Jim Clark again, the Juno attorney specializing in resource development. This one would be, uh, uh, I think, more difficult than the, uh, uh, what we did on the roadless exemption. So it's a long game, a conflict over natural resources that moves about as swiftly as a forest grows. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick. The COVID-19 pandemic has cost the Alaska Marine Highway System tens of millions in revenue from lost ridership. That's according to Rob Carpenter, the Department of Transportation's Deputy Commissioner, speaking Thursday at Southeast Conference. We've had roughly a $45 million revenue, uh, unrealized revenue um, 
impact since this all began. And that was, you know, right away we had to tie ships up. Uh, and, and this the unfortunate part was we were just getting ships back online from all the mechanical we had. He's referring to the breakdown of several vessels last winter, including the Matanuska Ferry at the beginning of the year. It was the sole mainliner the state had running. Regional service resumed in March. But then came COVID-19. Villages and communities locked down. They didn't want us to come. We, we couldn't come. We had to get our mitigation plans figured out. Um, anyway, we're running now and everything's going great, but we're still ridership is significantly down and our revenue is significantly impacted for what we what we had based our budget off of. So that has that has led into um, our winter schedule, uh, which is uh, I, I think at a level um, no one is happy with, including us. But uh, the service level, but that's what we can afford at this time. A nine-person marine highway work group created by Governor Dunleavy is expected to release its recommendations for the fleet's future next week. The task force has already ruled out privatization or any scenario where the state gives away the fleet. Carpenter says DOT awaits its report. We have a commitment to the marine highway system. We are, we are by no means looking to get rid of it. We, we, we realize that it's extension of the highway system in this, in this state, and we fully support it, and we're looking forward to something we can cling on to that uh, we, can, we can move forward and build off of. His remarks came during the annual meeting of Southeast Conference, a regional civic and business forum held virtually this year. The Glory Hall Homeless Shelter in downtown Juneau closed this week after two people experiencing homelessness tested positive for COVID-19. According to a release from the city and borough of Juneau, seven others are in quarantine. Glory Hall Director Maria Lovashuk says they learned about the positive tests on Monday. So we immediately moved everybody out of our night shelter into hotel, and we closed the day facility. The city tested 75 patrons and staff at the Glory Hall last Friday. All of those results came back negative. The city planned to do another round of testing today. Depending on those results, Lovishuk hopes the Glory Hall can reopen next week. She says this incident underscores the need for a larger homeless shelter with more space. The Glory Hall has plans to build a new shelter in the Mendenhall Valley and is hoping the city will fund it. If we had a bigger building than our existing facility, people could meaningfully isolate from one another. And we could actually ensure safety and compliance with um, social distancing standards. And we just simply cannot do it in our current facility. It's just simply too small. The city's emergency warming shelter at the Juneau Arts and Culture Center remains open for overnight sleeping. At Monday's Juneau Assembly meeting, city staff discussed the need to provide a day shelter for the city's homeless population as the weather grows colder. Many of the public facilities where people would normally go during the day are closed or have capacity limits because of the pandemic. The skull and bones of a humpback whale from Admiralty Island have been brought to Petersburg and could eventually be on display in that community. Petersburg resident Stephanie Hayes found what she believes are the remains of a young male humpback nearly two years ago in late 2018. It was on the beach at the mouth of Chapin Bay on southern Admiralty Island. Hayes and her husband, Joseph Quitzland, recovered the skeleton on August 20th this year and brought it to Petersburg. People should be very cognizant that not only did we go through the proper channels to make sure we could obtain the bones, but we also had to, had to do it with some caution because humpback whale bones are incredibly heavy. And there was some 
inherent dangers involved in having to beach our boat and overnight, actually, and and take the time to get the bones on and then float off when the tide came back in and uh, big swells came up. It was, it was quite a harrowing experience, and I'm just glad that all the bones came back safe. But it's not something I'd recommend other people go and try and do. Hayes has the necessary permit from the National Marine Fisheries Service to collect or use bones from the protected species. She's been talking with the Clawson Museum about an outside display and with Petersburg High School about re-articulating the skeleton as a biology project. You know, Glacier Bay has a humpback whale skull. Cake has a humpback whale skull. And yet here we have the Petersburg Marine Mammal Center. Yet we, and we have quite a lot of tourists coming to whale watch and residents also, yet we don't have a humpback whale skull or really any bones proudly on display anywhere. And I thought, you know what, I have an opportunity to uh, receive a permit and actually get these bones into Petersburg so that hopefully they can be displayed in a way that everyone, the public and tourists, can learn from. Even though the bones are from a very young whale, they're still large and very heavy. Hayes says the skull is about 7 feet wide and 9 feet long. Each jawbone is around 11 feet long. The tissue is gone, but the bones are still pretty oily and have a strong smell. It's not a complete set. Some of the humpback's 161 bones are missing, dragged off by bears or washed away by the sea. A spokeswoman for the National Marine Fisheries Service in Juneau writes in an email that this is believed to be a dead male humpback first observed August 20th, 2018, floating in Frederick Sound. That carcass was reported about a week after a state ferry reported a likely fatal impact with a whale. The remains were secured on Brothers Island for a necropsy, but broke free and floated away. There's no timeline yet as for when the whale could be displayed. That's it for this edition of the KRBD Evening Report. You can get this show as a podcast on your favorite podcast app or on your smart speaker by asking it to play the KRBD Evening Report. Thanks so much for listening. I've been your host, Eric Stone.